This is the Indian Players Podcast, Episode 8. Game design with what we've learned, and thoughts on the whole thing. Fifteenth, two thousand eighteen, and I am Jeanette Bushnell, and there's two other people sitting in the room, and we'll introduce ourselves, and ending with Jonathan, who will then talk a little bit about what we're gonna do a podcast about now. Uh, my name's Tyler Prather, and I'm Jonathan Tommy. <coughs> Excuse me, Jonathan Tommy. I'm kind of like being a little bit uh, anxious about this, and this is a podcast uh, India players we've been on hiatus for a long long time and we decided to talk about our post game which is never really a post game about our first game endeavor potlatch and we have a l- whole long laundry list of things that we like to talk about um, so I guess since Jeanette's the one who has the laundry list <laughs> if she wants to be the one who just <laughs> first brings something up and we can all discuss it I think that'd be a good way to go so okay. sounds Jeanette? good we did a thing. We made a game. Um, who would have thought? I never in a million years would have imagined that I can now call myself a game developer, but that is what each of us um, are. And uh, let me tell you, if you're working around a lot of young people and you say you're a game developer, you have instant, instant street cred. Uh, so you might want to consider it for no other reason than to get street cred with our young folks. Starting it as such, needless to say, I certainly didn't know anything about starting a game, and I learned a lot. And one of the things that uh, became very evident is that it really helps to have several people involved who have very different skill sets. And the three of us were have pretty different skill sets, but we even had to go outside of our group to complete it all. Um, one of the things that I think uh, was most important to me because though I love to play games, I'm kind of narrowly focused in that I played old games from the 1950s and 60s, you know, card games and uh, some of the box games that everybody plays. Um, I won't mention names. Um, and then I got into playing MMORPGs right when they first came out. I missed EverQuest. Um, but hit up the next ones and so my knowledge of games was somewhat limited so I think the most important skill for making a game is that you need someone who understands the concepts of game mechanics Um, and in our group I would say the person who really knew that the most was Tyler Um, and it was just uh, very enlightening as we started this process and and it's like I could talk about well economics but I had no idea how to make that into a game and and Tyler just talked about game mechanics and knew so much about it I don't know do you have anything to say about mechanics Ty? Um, 
Well, I mean, my knowledge of game mechanics uh, just kind of came from playing a lot of different games. Uh, you know, I play computer games as well. And I've played a lot of the older, like, you know, just box games you can get at really any store. Um, but then, in addition, I've also played a lot of, you know, uh, box games that you can only get at, like, gaming stores. Um, and, and really just playing a lot of those games kind of get an idea for what works and what doesn't work. Um, especially if you have a goal in mind for what you're trying to accomplish. Like, do you want people to collect resources? Then there's really only a few ways that work, you know, to collect resources mm -hmm. that um, really people can manage or, you know, strategize around. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what it comes down to. Um, but yeah, and just so playing a lot of games. But even then, you know, we took kind of a, a concept that was out there and tried to put mechanics to it and really the mechanics that I know that exist come from a structure very different than the one built around Potlatch. So maybe now uh, would be a good time to remind people about the game we're talking about. Um, we developed a card game that has 70, 80, 90? Well, I think like yeah, 75 75 cards. Um, and it comes in a little card box, like you might get a deck of cards to play poker with. Um, it's an educational game, primarily. It's about economics, and it's about uh, the economic system that was in place specifically around uh, the Salish Sea region, which in goes north of Vancouver, British Columbia, uh, south, south of Olympia, Washington, and maybe as far as the Cascades out to the outer Pacific Ocean coastline. Um, but uh, the, the type of, the system of economics is common to many indigenous cultures and it has to do with a sharing of resources. Um, part of the thing that I was thinking of for why I wanted to do this is I teach college students and a lot of times I complain about capitalism and the problems of capitalism. But when I would talk to them about economics, they couldn't get their head around an economic system that was not capitalism. Mm -hmm. They might understand barter system, but they, they were just caught within their own ideas. And so part of the reason I wanted to make the game was to have an actual example of an economic system that is not capitalism. And so we made a game, it's a, it's, that's what the name is, Potlatch, a game about economics. And it utilizes uh, the system of sharing that is now called an event called Potlatch, and that's how it got its name. So being quite different from a lot of the games that people play, that's what Tyler is referring to, is that because we're doing it about a shared economic system, which is something that the majority of not local natives know about, uh, we started with a steep learning curve for everyone. Did you have something you were gonna say? Probably, <laughs> uh, but you know, like I said, you know, Tommy and Orange were talking about having a question asked me and like the little light goes up in my head and that's nothing but darkness. Oh, okay. Um, I guess I just wasn't properly, properly prepared. I feel like I'm back in the first day of school uh, with that. Yeah, um, and I agree with uh, Jeanette that bandwidth high, as in there really wasn't anything out there, to my knowledge. And but that's not to say that there isn't or hasn't been, in a in a game form that actually addressed you know this notion of of 
resource accumulation and dispersal in such a way. I mean, mm -hmm. a vast majority of the games that I'm familiar with, you know, it's always about the acquisition of uh, resources and, you know, the ones with the most toys wins. Accumulation. You know, the accumulation yeah. of that. As a matter of fact, I mean, almost every game that even has an economic component on, like the 4X games, I mean, that's a big thing is, like, I capture this planet, I distribute it of its resources so I can continue going forward and I can then annihilate my enemy. You know, and, and this is completely different from that. But the one thing which we'll talk about more later is just how this really broke people's brains. Unless of two things. Either A, they were or are pro Salish or about the age of, you know, eight. Oh, fourth graders, you know, you know, younger. They are the ones who got it really quickly. Everybody else who's older, it took them a long time. And also just how they're fighting, you know, swimming upstream against, you know, the way that they have been taught how things are. And even when you would encourage them, you can do this, you can do that, even though it's not in the rules, it also means that's not in the rules, how often they just wouldn't listen. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But when they're, when they're actual hardcore gamers, like what we experienced at OrgCon, they figured it out quick and they figured it out with a, with a group larger than the, the dark that we had could actually hold. Yeah. The, for the, the hardcore gamers, and I think it gets back to understanding mechanics of play. Um, and so we only had to say things once or twice, and Tyler had the language for us to put that in more so than I did. So it's like he talks about accumulation games. Well, I never would have thought of calling it that, you know, where you get stuff or something. Um, and definitely, I think having the, a little bit of the language really helped for the gamers. But the other thing that I think uh, is important if you're going to make a game, well, especially if you're going to make an educational game, but I suspect any game would fall into this, is whatever it is that you're wrapping your game around, if it is accumulating things, or we recently reviewed a game about uh, power structures within a society, it's really helpful to know something about what your game is about. And so for us, understanding a shared economic system, for me, is something I think is, it was critical because at every step you have to make decisions about the rules and the gameplay and the mechanics. And you kind of, I found myself constantly going back and trying to imagine sitting at a potlatch and what kinds of things were going on. And so it helped to make the game, well, potlatches are potlatches and they've been going on for, you know, probably tens of thousands of years. And so our game was able to uh, call upon a framework that we knew worked. Um, and then all we had to do was like tweak it to make it, to gamify it, I guess. Um, and I, we, I knew a lot about potlatches because I've lived here for, I'm not gonna tell you how many years, but all of my years. And so I've been to many, many potlatches up and down the coast in various, um, I've been invited because I am not a coastal native. Um, and then I've just sat and talked to a lot of local elders to try to find out some of this stuff. We also kind of had an ace in the hole, and I'll jump ahead a little bit to community connections and that we knew some people who are still um, very deeply involved with uh, sh the shared economic systems that are done with potlatches. 
do either of you guys have anything to say about knowing what, well, just knowing indigenous philosophy probably helped a lot too. Yeah, but I want actually want to tie back to the knowing people who actually were gracious enough to help us out with all of this. And that is actually, you know, the biggest thing I think that we recognize as educators is that it always it matters when you're actually working with people who are from the region or are anything else like that because unfortunately one of the things that and we've commented about this many many times on many occasions on the podcast mm-hmm. amongst ourselves at at conventions wherever that there's always this look to to that there's an assumption of knowledge and you know we have been made aware enough that we really don't know anything you know and even even as Janice says she lived here all of her life and and I've been here since 2002 on or off with a four-year stint into Texas um that you know that we just know enough people that actually know what this is and they gave us feedback on it and especially how we focused in on it was not anything culturally specific we looked at the actual mechanics of it and made it abstract enough to where it got the spirit of the potluck without infringing or otherwise crossing any lines about the cultural you know significance sociological significance beyond what we already did or even at some points you know uh, we can say religious spiritual those aspects as well Um, and the reason why that's important is because um, that's who's been contacting us to help look at their projects and give them, you know, readings and our feedback, because there's a recognition there, and we and this is actually probably maybe we brought up at this podcast, maybe for a later one, but we're discussing one that we're working with right now, and and the efforts that that the that the game company is trying to do to understand these things, and unfortunately, they're trapped. I think within their own construct, even though they recognize it, but it's kind of difficult to get out of it because they're in. They know the, they're as Janet said. They know they're in the box. They just don't know how to get out of the box. Yet. Exactly, and they yeah, and that's why we do this. Mm-hmm. It's like I use the same thing when I teach about gender systems. So if you grew up in the U.S., uh, you learned really well that there's two genders: there's girls and there's boys, and there's male and there's female, and to try to teach young people that there's more than that you get blank stares until you explain well the Diné people have five genders and here's their five genders or you know there's at least three genders among the plains people and this is what they look like and if you can give an example of something outside the box um, it makes it easier to understand your box but that's kind of getting into the details of the game itself. And I think we're going to talk just a lot about making a game. Mm-hmm. So what Jonathan was really did a really nice job of showing is to know what you're, you're talking about, so to speak, um, will make it a lot easier, especially as people start playing the game and stuff and try to complain about it. And if you know what you're talking about, that, that goes a long way. Um, The next thing on my list for specific uh, things, a skill set that is useful, is somebody who knows something about technologies. 
um, the newer technologies, and I will date myself in that I, I know how to use rabbit ears on a television. <laughs> um, but some of the stuff involving the software programs for artwork um, to almost anything, working with, you know, setting up a web page, understanding some of the computer languages, just knowing how that works. I can't imagine making a game without that particular knowledge piece. Yeah, no, that's definitely, um, like the technological tools definitely make uh, the design process a lot easier. I know me and John uh, did a lot of the, the artwork, uh, like John more specifically the images and stuff, and then me doing the form line and kind of the card layout. Yeah, but, he did the hard work, by the way. <laughs> but uh, I mean, like, uh, you know, I'd, I'd used like Adobe Suite tools before, you know, mm -hmm. doing other little things, but there were a lot of things I had to look up throughout the whole process and, um, you know, translating the, the form line artwork that I've done before, which, you know, I've been doing art in several different manners my mm -hmm. whole life. So the, the hand skills of drawing it is an easy and natural to me. I was able to do that quickly. Mm -hmm. But then translating that to, you know, like my computer, the so digital. that we can actually print the cards. Um, yeah, that was that was a steep learning curve, I think, for us. And I think uh, what we've seen from other game developers we've talked about is that they specifically will hire or work with someone who is a, a graphic designer who that's what they do all day. So definitely saves a lot of time there. But I mean, we're well. three years in development, I think, for the <laughs> game and. A lot of that was going back and forth with just getting all the artwork just how we wanted it. Um, we probably want to insert here that we did this with zero budget. We had the, no budget. That's true. Yeah. So we um, any anything that we paid for was out of pocket, and we're academics and and we don't none of us has a lot of free floating out of pocket budget to play with. And so we really tried to keep it internal to the Indian players group, the three of us. Yeah. And I think that was important too um, for at least our first project project uh, of making a game mm -hmm. and just keeping it with you know our, our core group because it really gave us a lot of insight and for future titles that we may work on, you know, that learning experience of just trying it all ourselves. You know, it knows yes. now we know where our strengths and weaknesses are and where we may need to reach out to other people in the future for similar aspects that we had issues with. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I, I would like to add really quickly, that means that if you're gonna do something, make sure if you don't have the skill set or have friends that you're collaborating with, have the money and actually pay the people who you're hiring what they're worth. Yeah. You know, so if, because it, it, three, you know, as, Ty, as we said, three and a half years, well, that's, People say, well, you're working full-time, stuff like that, going to go, yes, we are. And the people who you, who you hired did this, that's their job. They work full-time as well. Yeah. Yeah, so. Um, I can't stress enough, though. Um, so we were saying these words, but uh, very specifically, Ty said he had to go back and, you know, do the Adobe sweet stuff. Um, I'm so far removed from technology that I can read those, and I, but I, I don't understand. It's like I see the words, but I don't know what the words mean. Um, I see these sentences and I, I just quickly, John and Ty will start talking about things and I am lost. I don't have a clue what's going on. 
Um, by the same token, I can probably talk circles around other things. Yeah, and I get oh yeah, <laughs> <laughs> blank stares. So it's just relying on everybody's skills is invaluable. Uh, one of those skills, uh, too, that came up, and I was a little surprised at how this played out, is to have someone who has an inkling of how to run a business. And again, we I relied on Ty for this. Um, he works uh, with his wife's uh, uh, massage therapy business. Yeah. Um, and it may not sound like, well, what does that have to do with games? But when you're talking to somebody who's never done anything with a business, it's like, I knew I was worried about paying taxes. I was worried about that. And other than that, I was clueless. No, I, I think you managed pretty well, though. <laughs> I think we did, yeah. yeah. I, I talked to some people, and, you know, my neighbor is a lawyer, and, and of course, she thought it was like nothing, and so she said, oh, no, you just go to this website and do this, that, and the other thing, and you're good to go. Um, and we did. We got our business license, and I probably worried more than I needed to, but if you have somebody who knows a little bit about business, that's probably a good thing. Mm -hmm. But I would like to say, no, do worry. Okay. Oh, oh, yeah, that's you true. Know, it's better to worry and be a worry wart in something like this than not because I've been doing some readings and I, I left a box over there where it's called a white box and I don't remember the guy's name right off of it, but he does point out that worrying is a good thing to do. Oh, well, then you know, we got it. Because, I got you covered. Well, <laughs> he points out a lot of like things that, that the do's and you don'ts. Like one thing is like, you know, always pay your taxes. No, you're going to pay them. Don't yeah. try to do any workarounds or do anything that's illegal because it's just not worth it yeah you know um are questionable so yeah worry 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 and the beauty of of being at least in the united states and i'm pretty sure in canada is that there are going to be here community or city colleges where you can even take courses on these things if this is what you're really interested in to do that aspect right which brings up um i this wasn't on my list but at some point, you have to make a decision. Is it worth it for you to delve deeply into learning Adobe Acrobat or Adobe Suite and learn how to do it? Or is that simply not worth your time and it's better to just go pay somebody? So when it came to, um, I was able to get all the business licenses because it was all online, it was pretty easy. But we finally paid a, a CPA and I went and talked, I actually talked to two, one did it for free and, and got me so that I didn't worry about uh, one deadline. And when that was passed, I went and talked to another CPA to completely understand the relationship between we are now a company, an LLC, um, that really doesn't have anything to do with taxes. And I, I thought it had everything. Um, and she drew pictures and gave me pieces of paper and said, write your name here, fill this out, send it here, do this, do that. And in about an hour and a half, she had us all put together. And I'm not sure I could have figured that out at all. So a little bit of business and definitely a bookkeeper, CPA, somebody who can get you started. Yeah, and I think that kind of speaks to um, like the division of labor of building a game. So I think a lot of people who are out there right now trying to make either their first game or even their second game, you know, struggle with the fact that if they're trying to do all of these aspects on their own, they're never going to get it off the ground. Because I have 
quite literally a countless number of friends who have been halfway through developing a computer game and because it's taken them eight years then you know ideas are very common and so then someone who had a team of eight people develops almost the exact same game before them Mm-hmm. And so then that, you know, five, ten years of work that they've been putting into this, like, you know, labor of love just, you know, now seems like no point in finishing because someone yeah. else did it because yep. they had a team. They had a group that they could work with. And that, I think, is the biggest thing because I've, I've even had single projects that I've worked on for years mm-hmm. and, you know, keep putting on the back burner because life gets in the way. But, you know, with this, we finish it. Because we had a team, we divided yeah. the labor, and we kept each other accountable and moving forward with everything we were doing. So, yeah, exactly. Yeah. That was that was really helpful, and it's really nice to to take something off your plate. So, like Ty said, he's he's been able to do artwork, and I'm one of those people that can't even draw a straight line, and so to be able to just Ty has the artwork. I'm going to take it off my list. And I have my own list, and John has his own list. But, um, mm-hmm. yeah, it's like we're – Jeanette will take care of the finances, and you guys don't have to think about it kind of thing. It was really helpful to have the team. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, which takes us back to the next thing on my list, which we've talked a little bit about, and that's having community connections. And so not only to – Um, be able to fill in our knowledge and skill gaps. So if there's things we don't know or we don't have the skills to do, um, but also to have a community of people who might be interested in this game or who might have some knowledge about what the game is about, uh, to go to them, to tell them of the ideas and to hear what they have to say um, and any feedback and then to actually use that feedback um, in the game development. So one of the things with our game is um, we use the local indigenous language, Lashootseed. And I had studied Lashootseed for my foreign language when I was getting my PhD. So I had studied for three years. Um, I would go up to Tulalip where they were teaching teachers about Lashootseed. And so I learned from some old older teachers about the language. But Language, that's not my primary gig. That's not the main thing. And so I was able to, just for the cost of taking her out to lunch a few times and buying coffee, uh, we had a language expert look at the words that we use in the language. And she had some really nice ideas. And it actually changed quite a bit of what the cards looked like and what words were put on the cards and how things were phrased. So in addition to uh, getting feedback from community members, I think it's really important to use the feedback. Um, And that's one thing I think all three of us are good at is like Jonathan said, we really found out that we don't know much and are very grateful for people who have helped us with this and we'll definitely, we're very good at, at using what people have to say. Um, the other time we used relied on our community a lot was for playtesting. Um, we we not only went uh, we do presentations, academic presentations, and we went to uh, gaming conventions and various things and got people to test our game. Uh, we made a little form. We are academics, so we do research. So we made a survey form and had 
asked people to fill them out and they were very gracious about doing it, got it out there. Uh, some of the things I never would have thought of, like um, the colorblind. So a lot of our cards are color coded and I, I thought, well, this is great. So little kids can play the game and they don't have to be able to read. And someone pointed out that that's all well and good, but there's a lot of people who might be colorblind. And so we put in um, codes for the, the folks who are colorblind. I don't know, would you guys have anything more to say about the, our play testers? Um, well, yeah, like especially for first time making a game, there was a lot of, you know, aspects that we just, I mean, yeah, really didn't even consider the, the colorblind is a really good aspect of that. Um, there were a few format changes that we made as well, because I mean, the original format of some of the cards people found confusing with the order they were trying to read them. I know mm -hmm. we, we switched some of that around too. Um, and yeah, just like minor suggestions about, you know, oh, the way or when this color was sitting here, you know, I, I couldn't see the number that was oh, inside right, of it. Right. And, uh, you know, or it was, I was really confused why, you know, because it wasn't explained in the rules why this had a color or what these colors were, you know, and just like as you're building the game, because you know everything about it because you're yeah. making it sometimes you don't always translate all of those aspects to like the rules you write or um you know what's on the card and there were times where we had played and we had made changes but we already knew so we didn't need those signifiers on right. the cards when we were testing it and that's yeah that outrage was yeah the only thing we really need to do is actually for some people is um, a little bit more clear rules uh, yeah, that might be on my list. It is, is on our list, actually. Of rule writing. Yeah. Um, one last thing I'd say about playtesting is we worked really hard to get a variety of people to play. So the thing about the colors actually came about at my family got together for Christmas, and some of my cousins wanted to play the game, and it was just in my mom's dining room, and the, the light was kind of low, and... There's some older people there who couldn't see real well, and they're the ones, it was like, oh, you are right. We cannot see a black number on a dark blue circle. <laughs> um, and so, I mean, talk about random people testing your game. Uh, we had people, all kinds of people test our game in all kinds of different situations. But yeah. rule writing, shall right. we talk about writing rules? Well, just one more thing about, oh. the, about the play testing and and this is actually more for you researchers out there, yes, talking to you in academia, academia, academic land that are thinking about doing this. Well, we actually have the skin that actually will take this feedback because that's what we do. I mean, Jeanette and I were talking about it, about our dissertations and whatnot, and just how much we always got back from our committees and when we you know submit things for conferences or publication just what you get back and forth and you know it's if you take it with what it is it you know as it's trying to make that as best as possible it's good and part of it is, is that it kind of make helps make get rid of some things that you realize just aren't working but you don't want to get rid of because i'm just kind of reminded of gordon ramsay when he does his kitchen nightmares and how he's telling people you can't do this anymore because it's not making you money and people don't want to let things go oh. Oh, that was a great show. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. it, it's just stuff like that. And and so it's like, you know, maybe out there, if you're not an academic, maybe you should have, like, some academic friends take a look at it because they will critique it. 
Yeah. You know, and it will go on its merits, and hopefully you have someone that's both, that they're gamers and academics, and that's actually not an uncommon combination. Yeah, yeah. That is true. Get feedback and use it. Um, rules, writing rules. Oh, what a bugaboo. So I didn't think twice about writing rules, and, and when we needed it, come to find out there's lots of information and rules about writing rules that um, you can GTS, as my daughter would say, Google that stuff, um, or uh, listen to your friends again, however it takes. We went through so many iterations of rules to the point where we're still rewriting our rules because the first iteration, as Ty said, is I did these rules, it made perfect sense to me because I made the game and I knew it was going on. Of course, there's a lot of things that I didn't put in and the rules as they stand now make a lot of sense to native people. They make sense to gamers who understand basics of game mechanics. Uh, they make sense to young people, like Jonathan said, under eight years old, because they have very nimble minds and are able to think anything. Um, but for an awful lot of people, I guess our rules are not easy to read, and so we're we're currently in the process of writing another version of them. We'll have multiple versions that for those who like it one way and also another so. yeah and i think part of the aspect like um when we initially wrote the rules and we had left a lot of stuff out yeah um then when we kind of went the opposite direction where we we detailed absolutely everything with supporting materials about why it was that way and mm -hmm. and then i think uh to the other effect it was too much information and so yeah. then people yeah. started questioning everything because they were receiving all this information and really it's you know someone people most people wanted that happy middle ground where yeah. it was just do this do this do this do this and then at the end be like if this do this if this do that and but yeah i mean there's there's a lot more i think to the game than just that kind of list because right. um, most of the time when people follow that simple how to play list they lose they lose at the game mm -hmm. like or they're unsuccessful in the goals of the game because they're able to go through the process, but they're not grasping the the nuance of the game that leads to a successful game or a successful playthrough. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, so part of this game had a lot to do with um, teaching people about local resources here. Um, we're we're north of Seattle um, in this area known as the Salish Sea area, and I probably wrote in. Um, too much academies <laughs> and all the resources and everything that was going on. Um, and I removed it with the idea in the back of my head that at some point I'll write a teacher's guide. And I was working on that and a teacher pointed out, she goes, oh, that's exactly like what so-and-so wrote. And come to find out all the information that we use in the game, actually there are people doing that. Local folks are doing that, so we don't have to do that anymore and we're able to focus more on the mechanics of it. Um, 
like I mean, I, I get what you're saying, but it, it was a really good piece of writing. I mean, <laughs> I enjoyed reading it because I was like, yeah, I'm learning, you know, like trying to think of it objectively, you know, removed from the, the creation process of someone reading it fresh. It's, you know, it's simple and clear, but I think, you know, there is that aspect of an academic mind reading it, appreciating all the aspects of it and still being able to maintain kind of that academic way of writing and following through and connecting things back instead of following it like a recipe. Yeah. And so like it, it was, it was still really great, you know, yeah, but, <laughs> even yeah. though it wasn't, I, it would be daunting. Needed. Yeah. If I were handed those rules of a different game, I would look at it and go, Oh, this is way too long. Let's just start playing and see if we can figure it out. Um, so we just recently picked up a game, a card game, some similarities to ours uh, called Ragnarok. I was in Iceland and it's a game about the Iceland mythology. And as far as I can tell, everything that I learned about writing rules, they did not do. Um, and m for the most part, it was really easy. It made a lot of sense. Uh, the rules were short, concise, do this, do that. There are a couple times when it was unclear what was supposed to happen but we just made up something, and that seemed to work. Um, well, well, also, to be fair, like the, the, we noticed that the very first one was what we call war. Right. And so they were already based off of games that we're familiar with, but it just came back, and then finally the one about telling a saga, the most advanced one, you have to have you know, intimate knowledge about Norse mythology to really do anything with that, because we were like, going, okay, this level is way too much for us. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. But the rules were fine. Yeah. We just didn't know the content well enough to, to play it, which was actually, I guess, another thing about game development is to, to have it so that you can put it down and spend some time learning more about it, and then at a future time you might be better at it, kind of like playing bridge or chess. There's, mm -hmm. there's definite stuff to learn uh, rather than have it so simple that you can quickly learn it all. Yeah. Um, Okay, the next thing I have on my list is what to do about marketing and distribution. Um, the distribution may be, well, they're two different things. We, um, distribution implies, well, that's just as it sounds like. It's like, okay, we had made a game. How do we get it to people who might want to play it? Um, and I think it was Ty or Jonathan who knew about these print-on-demand um, resources, Ty. I'm pointing um, to him. Yeah. I'm pointing when we're recording. That's right. <laughs> so you couldn't see that, but John pointed to Ty. So Ty was familiar with um, a game, well, Drive Through Cards is who it is, and they do print on demand uh, decks of cards and other box card games and what have you. And they're very easy to work with. Um, I can say that. Um, unquestionably, because I didn't do it, Ty did it, and so it was very easy for <laughs> me. <laughs> um, well, I mean, we had built up experience working with them because in our later prototype stages for the game, after we, uh, you know, had done everything on note cards, sticky notes, you know, oh, yeah. all the different materials we used to simulate cards, when we were finally ready to print something, you know, we we printed off one copy with them. Mm -hmm. I think it was something like $6 oh, yeah. plus shipping. And so for a actually pretty decent quality prototype, you know, it was like, oh yeah, of course. And then 
later down the road when we did some testing and we needed bulk copies, you know, they had a high volume rate that we were able to utilize. And again, you know, the expense really wasn't that much to get enough copies to, you know, play test with. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah. Um, also, this is probably something that, like we said before, if you want to put in the time, um, we found a video, and Jonathan, you found it, of people making a, a game in a box, and they made their garage into a uh, industrial production site with, you know, press things to cut out, die cut, or... Oh, uh, yeah. Remember yeah. that? The, the video of, like, all the things you need to make a complete well, game, and... Well, they actually are an Australian game company, and so they have the infrastructure and the skill to actually make their own prototypes. Yeah. And so that's what they are doing to show how you can make a prototype and the tools that you need behind it, mainly because I think that they're, what they do is that they go to conventions and they, mm -hmm. they hawk their wares and they go that route, plus yeah. with other crowdsourcing, which I think is interesting because I don't know if you've been paying attention to Steve Jackson Games, mm -hmm. that they're that he's bringing back out. I don't even know if you ever played it in the Labyrinth or Melee or Wizard or whatever. It's an old, old system predates GURPS, but he did all kind of funny. And this guy is Steve Jackson Games. It's a huge game company. But he's even gone that route. He'll see if there are people who have interest for it. Okay. He did also with his other uh, fantasy, the other one, the board, the box board. So one. he made his mm -hmm. own prototypes, is what you're saying? Steve well, Jack well, what he did is that everything was from back in the olden days. He brought mm -hmm. all that stuff out that he could find and remake to you know, go to conventions himself and push something that was made like 30, 40 years ago that, that people saw interest for. There's a cult following and oh. he garnered interest for it. So just like that one company that goes out there does these things, mm -hmm. that's actually a very common thing that people do is like they want to see the game and when they're seeing the game, they play the game. Oh, right. They right. get, like we had Orcon, you know, that yeah. company that they were going, ooh, this is cool, people are playing it. Mm -hmm. so. yeah. yeah. I think what John was, yeah, kind of speaking to or at least the transition is that the newer model for games is the you know, kind of print-on-demand, create a prototype to show to people instead of, uh, I guess, an older model of, you know, speaking with a factory and getting a ton of copies that you potentially may never sell. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, like, um, so even a big company like Steve Jackson Games, who could afford to print, you know, a million copies from a factory somewhere mm -hmm. is, you know, jumping over to the main, like, get crowdfunding to then, you know, kind of print on demand mm -hmm. for the quantity that's desired. But that's cool. Yeah, I'll have to I'll have to go and look it up. I haven't really looked at any of his games lately, but I do own a lot of them. So they are pretty fun. Hmm. Well, as you are probably gathering, there's a lot of different ways to do the marketing and the distribution. Uh, the beauty of crowdfunding is it's kind of like free marketing, free advertising, and people are used to looking at... Um, crowdfunded sites to see games. And so if you go ahead and, and do a crowdfunding project, uh, that's a good way to start out your game getting known. And I'd, I'd like to back up a little bit here. When I was talking to the CPA, the, the bookkeeping people, another beauty of that is if you were to just print a lot and then distribute it, um, you're quickly getting into more complex bookkeeping because you have to take inventory, you have to store all these pieces and parts and games somewhere. Um, most of ours are stored in my upstairs, um, but I would really like them all to go away. 
Um, and so things like that come up, whereas if it's all print on demand, um, you don't have the storage, you don't have the inventory. Um, but then you also don't have lots of copies of the game out there for people to be seeing. So, And it cuts into your profit margin. But then I think, like you yeah. said, you know, having your square footage back and not having the headache of dealing with that is is a thing. Which I which I also like us to tack on the the whole sticker thing, which was kind of like the reason why we got a certain route. We oh, why we did self distribution. Yeah, yeah. Because I think that's an important thing to point out as well about the stickers that we added for our Kickstarter. Right. Why we yeah. had to self distribute, which was basically we decided for one of our tiers to offer oh. a sticker, and then we only realized afterwards, oh darn, we, we're gonna have to mail this thing. And so we went back and forth. And I think, I would say, honestly, we probably chewed up about a month's time trying to figure out how we're gonna do it and not not over, just something we did with over a course of months when we brought it up, we came to a conclusion, was that um, we're going, okay, we can either get it mailed through from drive through games, but then we came back to the thing, but oh darn, what do we do about oh, the sticker? And actually, it, in retrospect, as Jeanette said, it probably would have been just cheaper just to throw the sticker in an envelope and just mail it separately from drive through but it took us how long? Yeah. Today, for Jeanette to say, I'm just gonna do it this way, and we're going, oh, yeah. But then we couldn't because the stickers, we'd still have to, you know, we were just thinking about the whole kind of thing, we're just too busy with oh, stuff like yeah. that, right? But it, it's something like that to where um, if you're going to do this, make sure that whatever, if you're going to go the mail order route, or I should say the front of demand route, make sure everything can get mailed in standard mailers that can fit in one thing. Everything is as off the shelf as possible because mm -hmm. you don't want to pay for custom anything unless you're us and we got Ty who are someone like him who can make awesome, you know, you know form line design. And stuff like that but it, it's just things like that that you really need to do those inventories and you really need to see you know what you can do what's readily available and go the lowest cost possible yes um, if you were to look at any of your boxes sitting around where you're at they're probably from a company called Uline um, and so I will freely call that out because there really aren't a lot of other um, container makers um, I really wish I had gotten a Uline catalog before we did anything, uh, anything, even decide the size of our cards, the number of cards. Um, once we had the actual deck of cards, we were locked. And then I had to go try to find um, a thing to mail them. Um, but that had to do with our crowdfunding. Uh, we ended up, it got a little more successful um, perhaps out of control than we had anticipated. And so I had to mail out uh, 1,600 copies of our game. And by then it was way too late to make changes. And it was after the fact trying to figure out what they fit in and all the various mailer sizes. So if you think you may be at all distributing uh, from a crowdfunding, first get the, get the boxes and see what they'll fit into. Or there's companies that will distribute for you for a fee. Mm -hmm. And of course, we had no money, so the for a fee was a deal breaker. Um, but it's something, it's something to consider. Um, evidently, you lose a lot of um, dis the um, decision making when you go to a distributor. 
So I was talking to a friend of mine recently who's in a completely different industry, but she was warning me about when you pay dis distributors, you are, they're going to do it their way, not your way. Yeah. And uh, I think kind of related to that one thing about we were surprised uh, when we started doing our crowdfunding campaign is we were contacted actually by a lot of yeah. fulfillment companies, yeah. uh, which are basically people who want to take a portion of your crowdfunding earnings, uh, mm -hmm. generally a percent, um, to handle the uh, printing and distributing of you know whatever product it is that you're funding for. And well, they, they, they make a living of doing that. And yeah. so while some of them to an extent may do the job really well, um, if you can find your own printing company uh, who does handle, you know, at least delivery, mm -hmm. you know, or production and delivery for you, then that, that can be a boon, especially on the smaller scale. And then you're not getting cut into right. uh, your, you know, your funding from, uh, the crowdsourcing because it's you know you have to set the amount for what your product is worth mm -hmm. uh, the amount of money you'd like to make on it but then of course you know kickstarter fees mailing fees and all the other fees that quickly add up and i think again we spent another large chunk of time working through the math trying to figure out well should we ask for ten dollars or fifteen dollars per copy or you know yeah um, um i wish i had attended to that more so we ended up, uh, our profit, uh, our, our cash left over that we're using to develop our next game is 10% of what we made from our, our uh, crowdfunding campaign. I don't know if that's, and that's after all said and done. So all the fulfillment is done. Um, like John said, we had these crazy stickers. So rather than have the... Um, Everything gets shipped out directly from our print-on-demand site. Uh, they all came here and were, were processed, packaged. Um, I'm on a first-name basis with our local post office. Um, and, yeah, there had to have been an easier way. Yeah. Um, the other thing, if you're going to do the crowdfunding and you're going to distribute yourself, find out first how much it costs. So one of our, our options was people could buy a 10-pack of the game. And we said, yeah, we'll ship all over the world. And we set some amount for shipping that was woefully, woefully too low. So all of our big uh, people where we got the, the larger um, the larger district or the uh, the promised money for the crowdfunding, we lost most of our money on that because uh, some of the, the, the bigger items cost uh, $70, $75 to mail out, and that was more than our profit plus other losses. Mm -hmm. But, you know, we have games now on every continent except Antarctica. Very true. And I think uh, now distribution is one of our skill sets. Yes, now we know. <laughs> that is absolutely true. Uh, we might know what we don't want to ever do again, too. Yeah, is, yeah true. Um, I think one thing, too, to keep in mind uh, for anyone out there doing uh, crowdfunding is you can actually set a limit 
And we didn't think of setting a limit because we kind of went in with the mindset of, oh, there's no way we were, we were worried we would even make our minimum. Yeah. So let alone even consider thinking about a limit. But um, when we made the decision to self-distribute, setting a limit probably would have been a good idea because then we would have known exactly how much shipping we would have had to deal with. But it happened. Mm -hmm. It happened and people helped and, uh, yeah, and in case you're unfamiliar with what our initial goal was, was $2,500, and then we ended up, as Jeanette said, 10 times that, you know, twenty over $25,000, which was phenomenal. And when you hear that, we first thought, woohoo, but then fortunately, cooler heads prevailed, which wasn't mine, and <laughs> said, well, let's see what it's actually going to cost, because really, um, with the print-on-demand, we owe, I mean, the... the, the large volume printing discount we got really wasn't that much yeah you know and actually as we as we discovered you know in our in a realization is that if we just do it like from there then that would have cut back on our shipping costs because they would have been able they they have all their distribution network set up and everything else like that but here's another thing is that also if you're designing make sure you understand size and weight weight yeah weight W-E-I-G-H-T. Get a gram scale and weigh every piece of paper, every sticker, every rule card, the card box, the rubber band that goes around the card box, everything. Weigh it. Yes. And in retrospect, it was probably foolish on our part to do it the way we did. And so um, do not... I would not recommend uh, doing the processing yourself. Um, evidently, drive-through cards would have been more than happy to do all of this, and it was those darn stickers that we got caught up with, and we should have done it a different way. Yeah, um, yeah and like John mentioned, you know, you had yeah. brought up the easier solution, which of course we only thought of, or you only thought of after. After. But, yeah. um, the other thing to think about with crowdfunding is, um, Make sure that you run the numbers enough so that you really know. I think if we had just asked for $2 more for the item, we went with a round number of $20, um, it would have made a huge difference. And I think, you know, people contribute to crowdfunding both to get something from it, but also to support the idea. And I think we would have had um, a lot of people who would have thought nothing of a few more dollars. And then we would have had a little bit of bigger budget to work on our next projects. So we're going to probably do a couple more small projects that now that we know uh, to kind of build up our uh, cash reserves so that when we do the board games, uh, we'll be able to outsource more of the work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, the last thing I have on my list is what to do with online reviews and Mm. Tyler had mentioned that Um, Jonathan and I as academics and college professor types we've been getting reviews from students for decades uh, decades and decades and over the years uh, the anonymous reviews got more and more uh, unhelpful to the point where I quit reading mine at all in about 2003 and it's 2000, so 15 years ago, I continue to get uh, anonymous reviews from students. 
um, I never look at them. I used to have um, family members read them and, and go through them so that the, the truly hateful ones I would never see. Um, and then I quit doing that. It's like these are not useful to me in any way. Um, so I quit. Tyler, on the other hand. <laughs> well, I mean, I, uh, I haven't had as much experience in academia as, yeah. as the two of you. Um, and so I, I made the mistake of actively seeking out any review about our game and uh i think i think just in general and really anyone who has their work critiqued will kind of say the same thing is that um the the first person to write a review will be someone who hates it um and so will the second third fourth and fifth and so on and so on and so on until uh someone who absolutely loves it will you know maybe write a review or they'll love it so much that they'll forget to write a review uh, and so you're just kind of getting into the trap of just a cesspool of negativity about yeah. your product. And it's rarely constructive. Yeah. Um, you'd get more constructive criticism or feedback from testing the game, mm -hmm. from playing with people who are actually there looking at you, um, because then, you know, they will frame what they're saying in some way that's helpful. Um, but yeah, and I mean, the, the positive take back from the... Uh, negative reviews and the stress that I caused myself by reading them was that we did go back and take another look at our rules. Um, yeah, yeah. And so we did, uh, you know, continue. We were, but we have continued uh, to work on revising those. And so, uh, yeah, luckily uh, my wife was there with me, supporting me uh, when I was feeling down because, you know, we put... Oh, to three, three and a half years of work. Yeah, into and to criticize and... your artwork, clearly for someone. So Ty did this wonderful uh, artwork that's uh, unique to this the Salish Sea area, very unique. It's different than you know north of here where you see a lot of the the uh, Southeast Alaska art, which people associate with Salish Sea art, but that that's not our art. And Ty did this ingenious work on our cards and worked very hard so that. The local people who saw this artwork were just, I mean, they just got a big grin on their face because they recognized the design elements and the work and the thoughtfulness. And so to have people who didn't know that make disparaging remarks about his artwork, I was very dismayed to hear that. Oh, I kind of felt like they would be the same people who would jump on the bandwagon of Gamergate and stuff like that. And oh, just okay. They just have to throw vitriol and hatred out there because, you know, mm -hmm. that's what they got. That's know. true. One of the things, too, that, to mention is that uh, John and I live near each other, and so we sit here face-to-face -face time. Uh, together we would go to local gaming conventions or native academic conventions or local schools, and we would play the games, and we had a form, and people would fill out the form, and so... We were getting constant feedback that was really useful, and I have all those forms. But Tyler lives a long ways away, like halfway across the continent. And so I think you missed reading a lot of the really useful uh, critique. I mean, we would tell them to you, but it's not quite the same as being slapped in the face with, <laughs> I don't like your artwork. Yeah, yeah, no, those, that stung a little to read. But no, definitely, um, like the distance uh, bet between us and like, getting that kind of face-to-face -face feedback during beta testing, I, I did miss out on. Yeah. Um, but that's another thing too, is because about, yeah, about halfway through 
uh, working on this project was when I moved yeah. out of the country. Yeah. Um, and so we were able to maintain working on the, the project, you know, oh, yeah. using tools like Skype um, and other just, you know, video and voice mm -hmm. uh, messaging systems, you know, and just, yeah, yeah. like that was, that was something that we Sharing spent a lot of time to mm -hmm. uh, just being able to screen share stuff and pop stuff up. And yeah, having and tolerant partners. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, and quiet rooms Yes, for yes. the most part uh, where we can do things like this podcast in my living room because my husband graciously is upstairs working and Ty's wife is graciously in the other room working and we mm. are we're grateful to our, our families that share our living spaces <laughs> that allow us to do this. Yes, indeed. That's everything on my list. John or Ty, did you have anything more that we'd want to – there's probably a lot more, but – that's all I have. Yeah, I think much like, um, you know, when you make something and you don't always realize to put those details into what you're working on or sharing with other people, it's probably a lot for leaving out about the developing process. But I think we'll probably revisit this topic a few more times, of course, just when you continue talking about game development, you know, formulating ideas, mechanics, and mm -hmm know moving on through there through that process yeah what he said <laughs> um i would like to leave everyone with the thought that if you're thinking about developing a game just do it um do it quickly if possible um actually i think three years for nothing to a successful game that's around the world right now Mm -hmm. is probably not a really, it seems like a long time to me, but I bet it's not really a long time. Yeah. Um, but you can't know how many people we talk to that say, oh, that's great, you know, I wish I'd done something like that. And you just just do it if mm -hmm. you're interested. And if it's not good, next time it'll be better. Yeah, and, and to go with that is like, we also have to remember that, you know, working jobs, raising yeah. families, well, not me. But the, the family part, taking care of a cat or two, okay, that's me. Um, that, those things just come and, you know, get, not, don't get in the way. They're just part of your life, you know. And, and so that's a big thing as well. And we would, you know, parcel that time and have to make allowances for Ty and the two-hour difference. And he was always a good sport and yeah. obviously was very tired towards the end of every, every meeting to where somehow we diverge on something different like, the latest, uh, the latest, you know, doohickey doodad gadget film thingy or whatever. Um, or Ty and I would go off and talk about something technology, and Jeanette's eyes would go, "Okay, I'm. I don't know what you're talking about." <laughs> or Jeanette would talk about all, everything she knows, and the other ninety percent of it would go, "Okay, we don't know what you're talking about," and and things like that. So it just, you just have to just really just do it. But go to conventions. Go to the smaller ones, sit down with people, see what they're playing, um, let yourself be known. Locally here for us, OrcaCon is, is one, and unfortunately, because there's a conflict today, they actually had a meeting planning, but we had to do this because of Ty being in town and a short window he has for us because he and his wife are here, and family, they're traveling around, seeing everybody that they can until they have to go back. Um, but. You know, just doing that, working the smaller circuits, meeting people, going to the places, take your stuff there, prototype it. You know, OrgaCon here for us is great just because it it has a wide a wide selection, but it's much more about board games. 
you know, maybe going to a Pokemon tournament, maybe not the best thing, A, because they're prohibitively expensive to go to, because you actually have to have money to be at those. Mm. I mean, a lot of money. My nephew plays Pokemon. I'm going, jeez, how much money do you guys put into this? Your magic probably not as good either, you know, but other, other conventions like that, I think that they're really good because you'll find people who are really interested in playing games, and if you're fortunate like us, where there are so many game stores that have formed up here that actually have play spaces, you know, they would be interested as well. Yep. And with that, we will sign off, and you'll probably hear from us at some time in the future. Good night. <laughs>